0: Daily news and analysis, we keep you informed and inspired.
1: This is World Today.
2: Hello and welcome to the panel discussion of World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. A week into the Israel-Hamas war, the crisis is of course continuing to escalate. The surprise weekend attack by Hamas was the biggest single mass killing of Israelis since 1948. Israel is retaliating by targeting the Gaza Strip, namely a small territory that has been under the control of Hamas since the year 2007. In this edition of the program, we will continue to explore the underlying issues behind this crisis, as well as whether it will spiral into a bigger regional conflict. To listen to this episode again, or to catch upon on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Guy Burton, adjunct professor at the Department of International Affairs with Vassilius College in Brussels. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Also joining us is Dr. Wang Jing, Middle East expert and associate professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Welcome back. Thank
0: you.
2: And finally, we have Ricardo Laramont, Professor of Political Science and Sociology with the State University of New York in Binghamton, as well as a Senior Fellow of the Atlantic Council. So, Dr. Guy Burton, to start with you, um, talking about... Why? uh, A week into the uh, crisis, let's uh, take a look um, back at the situation back then. According to Hamas itself, the attack was provoked by the recent events surrounding the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where a mosque has been entered by Israeli settlers recently. Also, the attack began one day after the 50-year anniversary of the 1973 Arab Israeli war, which also began with Egypt and Syria attacking Israel at the time. So in your observation, what has really motivated Hamas to launch this attack?
1: Well, th- again, thank you for having me. I mean, I guess the main first point to make is that this is somewhat unprecedented. I think a lot of observers, analysts, have been, t- caught, as well as those uh, caught up in it, have been caught by surprise by the way that Hamas... Uh, launched such a large-scale uh, attack this time, because obviously, as, you're, as you've alluded to, there has been uh, you know, points of conflict and, and and attacks back and forth between Israel and Hamas over the years. Uh, but this, the sheer scale of this has surprised people. And you're right that that is the proximate reason. Of course, there's the wider, broader, you know, contextual one of the, the Israeli occupation, and specifically the siege of Gaza, which has been going on since Hamas took over the, the, the Strip in 2007. But I think there's also other things going on as well. I think it's you know people have alluded to the fact that there may be at the external level uh, an attempt to try and uh, derail the the uh, possibility of normalisation between Israel and other Arab countries, most notably Saudi Arabia. But I also think there's domestic factors as well. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, I mean, Hamas is in control of the Strip, but there has obviously their, contr- their, pa- their control has been. Uh, Made difficult by the the lack of power, the lack of goods and services and resources limit, and so you're seeing you have seen over the last few years, you know, growing protest, growing frustration by the population, you know, at home. So this could also be, you know, Hamas trying to you know reestablish grip, reestablish control over Gaza, and then of course, you know, in the Palestinian we can talk about this later, but you know, in the Palestinian polity more generally, you know, Hamas's attempts to try and you know make itself the principal uh, you know resistance party.
2: Mm. So Dr. Wang Jing what is your analysis? I mean apart from those uh, external factors uh, would you agree in this point with um, Professor Guy Burton that actually the internal politics of the Palestinians are also at play here. Like uh, in order to rival with the Fatah, which is in control of the West Bank, another territory of Palestine, uh, Hamas wants to present itself as the true force, as the authentic voice for resistance.
0: Yeah, I think the very, of course, the very major background of this. Uh of this very uh, attack from Hamas was the result of uh, the very long-term deadlock of uh, the israeli uh, back, uh, blo- uh the, the, the blockade against uh, Hamas in Gaza. Uh, also, of course, this is very par- partially of this is very important reason. And I want to stress that uh, we have to know that during the past decade, actually, ever since 2014, when the United States' very last attempt uh, to bring the Israeli and the Palestinians back to a uh, very eternal and, uh, and a very, uh, uh a comprehensive peace plan. Uh, after that, there has no, uh, peace process, peace progress between Israel and the Palestinians. Actually, the people feel disappointed. Actually, uh, people feel started to feel frustrated. So, against this backdrop, I think it's a very major background that why the, the Hamas launch attack. But we cannot forget that, that, uh, I think, uh, just as a lot of, uh, uh, many other analysts mentioned that, uh, uh, the, the very very uh, one, especially the 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 very process of uh, normalization between Israel and the Saudi Arabia, uh, might be the very major motivation for this round of attack. Because actually, during the past, uh, past the past years, I mean, Hamas launched again, again, again uh, against Israel, while uh, Israel retaliated again, 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 uh, targeting Hamas. So it's a, a new it's a, has already become the very uh, round of uh, the between the two sides. But why this? This, uh, this time is so uh, fierce, is so strong, the attacks from Hamas. I mean, ever, that led to the very, uh, the, the, the largest uh, wave of, of uh, humanitarian crisis, both for Israelis and the Palestinians, ever since 1948. I think it's very, may, maybe the big, biggest one. I think major because Hamas hopes to show the world that Israeli-Palestinian peace issue cannot be ignored as Europe and cannot be forgotten. Uh, as uh, what, has, what has already been uh, during the past year. So I think Hamas hopes to show the world that this issue is still there, they are important, and the Arab states cannot normalize ties with Israel without the very final settlement of the Palestinian issue. So that is why I think they motivate, uh, the motivates Hamas most to launch such uh, a strong wave of attack mm. against Israel.
2: Mm. So Professor uh, Ricardo Laramont, let's talk about the Israeli side. I mean... The politics of Israel, uh, you know better than I do, has been pretty much divisive in recent years, which early this year have um, really culminated in this public outcry and protest against the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, judicial overhaul attempt. So with that in mind, how would you make of this fact that Benjamin Netanyahu and a leading opposition figure in Israel have created a unity government?
3: Well, despite the differences between Netanyahu and his opponents in Israeli society, there is a natural reaction to um, band together in unity despite their differences in the face of such a large attack that led to the death of 1200 people or so. It is viewed as an existential threat against the Israeli people, and in the face of that threat, despite whatever uh, uh, differences may exist between the parties, there will be a natural appeal to unity to confront that existential threat. Um, the, The larger question is really. At the heart of the issue and, and that is Netanyahu's, um, two decade or three decade long policy of essentially not following through on the Oslo Accords mm. to make sure that there would be no movement to, um, a two, a two state solution. And that is really at the heart of, of the issue here that provokes, um, this, this terrorist attack by Hamas, while at the same time exposing the profound policy differences within Israel with regard to how to proceed with the Palestinians.
2: Mm. Okay. So, of course, I mean, Professor Laramond, I mean, when we talk about, say, Hamas, this particular organization that has been governing Gaza for more than a decade, frankly speaking, Hamas by no means represents the whole of the Palestinians. Do you think the Hamas attack this time around justifies Israel to say, cut off water, food, and electricity supplies to Gaza to launch a kind of siege and a bombardment of the Gaza Strip, Professor?
3: I mean, following international law as we know it, the Lack of provision of electricity and water to civilians contravenes um, the normal standards of how one, how a civilized society engages in warfare. Um, so we will just accept that that is a fact. Um, on the other hand, when a nation has suffered uh, an attack on this scale that involves the wanton killing of women and children, one can understand why a society may not be inclined towards mercy and rather towards vengeance. Um, So the the tactics of revenge have been put into place, um, and it's understandable. The question is whether this policy will be successful in the long run, which it probably will not, Mm. because what we see before us is going to be a ground war that will involve large losses of life, both for the Israeli Defense Forces and for Palestinian civilians. So, I mean, we as outsiders can see the logic of revenge and the consequences of revenge in the short term, while keeping in mind that in the long term, this this ground invasion will be costly, and at the same time may not necessarily be successful.
2: Mm. Okay, so Professor Guy Burton, um, based on what um, Professor uh, Ricardo Laramont has elaborated, um, one point is pretty significant here. He says that military operation alone probably cannot achieve the goal over the long term. Uh, so in your observation, do you think Israel in its uh, retaliatory measures against the Gaza Strip, will be able to cripple the military capability of Hamas entirely?
1: Well, I mean, in the immediate short term possibly i mean they're going to go after you know their assets um, but you know, long term there's a, there's a problem with the fact that you can't eliminate you know an organization and its ideas i mean hamas has been you know present in the gaza strip since 1987 since the first intifada um, you know it, it's, it it even if you Eliminate, you know, sort of the leadership. If you're able to sort of, you know, cripple its 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 physical assets, you know, the ideas that uh, have driven it and and many of the people that are associated with it will not necessarily go away. So, I I, I, I hesitate to see this as, um, you know, like like Professor Laramont that this is going to uh, you know deliver uh, what the Israelis are doing. But at the same time, there doesn't seem to be a very clear Idea: What the Israelis want at the end of all of this campaign? Um, it seems to be very much driven uh, in the in the wake of what has happened, um, and also just keep in mind. I suppose the you know the Israeli you know if we want to look say nor- further north, I mean. Hezbollah launched a, you know, a, an attack on, on Israel back in 2006, that war was quite significant. Um, and certainly the Israel, there was a, a major uh, conflict there you know, in the wake of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that Hezbollah still happens to be around. So the idea that this is going to completely um, root out, pull out Hamas uh, seems somewhat fanciful. Um, but there's still the question of, OK, and even if that does happen, what, what happens the day after? Mm. So,
2: Dr. Wang Jing, let me get your take on this. I mean, uh, let's take a look at the scenario before the outbreak of this latest attack by Hamas. I mean, over the past decade or even longer, uh, Israel has adopted a strategy known as mowing the grass towards Hamas. Um, basically, the troops of Israel have relied on their, you know, on Israel's own Iron Dome missile defense system, and they would periodically hit Gaza with airstrikes, believing that although uh, threats and assaults from Hamas cannot be totally eliminated, they could be controlled within a certain level that is acceptable to Israel. Uh, but now it seems. Uh, there is a rethinking, reconsideration on the Israeli part about this particular strategy. But do you think it is um, time for Israeli troops to abandon this strategy?
0: There was always a debate about inside Israel about the topic of Hamas, topic about the strategy towards Gaza, uh, ever since we know that uh, <coughs> after the disengagement uh, that adopted by Israel after 20, uh, 2005, uh, actually, there has always been a very hotly debated uh, topic inside Israel about whether that uh, they are doing the right thing—that leave Gaza to the Palestinians themselves without intervention of Israeli forces—and the Israeli, Israeli political power directly into the region. And meanwhile, there also always has been debate about debating about the the, the topic that whether Israel has the necessary necessities as well as the the, the, kind of, the capabilities to uh, eliminate the Hamas uh, totally. So. Uh, on the one hand, I think uh before this attack, actually, the majority of Israelis believe that uh, uh, the although Hamas has already c- controlled the, the Gaza Strip after the so-called uh, this, uh, disengagement uh, adopted by Israel in 2005, uh, Israeli policies, especially the blockade against uh, the Gaza Strip and the limit the expansion of the uh, Hamas as well as the, the Jihad uh, militants mm-hmm. inside Gaza, uh, actually are largely successful. And Meanwhile, we can, and then, then there was a larger problem that uh, after this round of attack, there were some kind of voices. I think about okay, they should do more to eliminate the Hamas uh, totally. But now, uh, the the problem is that I think the most of these voices that uh, to eliminate Hamas uh, from the from Gaza or from uh, from the earth, that's the most short term, that are the kind of a uh, uh, kind of result of very emotional. Uh, uh, emotional uh, the, the the factors because they want to re- retaliate strongly, we want to revenge strongly. But now, let's if we look at the reality, it's very difficult to to eliminate the kind of ideology. It's very difficult to eliminate the kind of thinking, thing, especially the the organization that's based upon this ideology and this thinking. So I don't think they can do it successfully. Although they will, of course, will still debate in the future inside Israeli society, but uh, it will be very difficult to put it into practice. Uh, just according to their own
2: well and their uh, their own uh, consideration mm. so Professor Ricardo Laramont, uh, like uh, Dr Guy Burton uh, mentioned earlier um you know a point of consensus among analysts seems to be that Hamas this time around could well be attempting to torpedo a possible u s brokered normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, has been very eager to try to achieve a a deal between the two sides. But but from the perspective of Israel and Saudi Arabia, in your observation, do you think the two parties, the two sides, still have the incentive to pursue a normalization deal now?
3: In the short term, the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel will be postponed. But we have to see that there's a larger economic logic
0: mm-hmm.
3: that is leading to the reestablishment of relations between United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia and even Morocco with Israel. Um, there are clear um, economic incentives for this rapprochement that will push this process forward because by pursuing this uh, reconciliation or this rapprochement, there's the possible pursuit of significant economic interest leading to uh, mutual investment across the region that would lead to economic growth. So that's going to stay in place. So in the longer term, there will be Uh, this eventual reconciliation among the various parties. But as part of this process, some sort of dignity has to be restored to the Palestinian people, which will then be a sticking point. Mm -hmm. That probably will not be possible with Netanyahu in place, but we have to start thinking about a post-Netanyahu world. And the Hamas uh, attack as terrorist-oriented and as disastrous to the interests of the Palestinian people as it is, is simply going to be a significant sort of roadblock uh, in a longer process because of the economic interests that are involved that will continue to push the parties towards this rapprochement and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So we have to think short-term and long-term.
2: Mm. So, Professor Guy Burton, would you agree, uh, or what is your observation regarding this um, near-term versus long-term scenario or prospects? Do you think, um, do you agree with Professor Laramont in this point? Maybe over the long term, uh, the economic incentive would uh, outweigh these uh, short-term occurrences taking place right now? Professor Burton.
1: Yes. I would concur with that. The you know the normalisation of, of ties is has this economic logic that's going that's going on you know under under underneath. Um, but also I think there's also a political dimension to this as well, which is that you know albeit although Iran and Saudi Arabia have you know, reached a certain degree of rapprochement this year, the rivalry has not dis- been completely eliminated. The two still see each other as as rivals in the region. And of course you know with that the Saudis and the Israelis. Israelis find themselves on one side of the fence and the Iranians on the other. So there is much for the, you know, to, to pull the Saudis and, and the Israelis uh, closer to each other. Um, but yes, in the short term, I think what's happened is that Hamas has reminded uh, the, the international community that the Palestinians cannot be ignored. I mean, the big thing about Netanyahu during his uh, two decades of rule has been to effectively... Uh, ignore the peace process and to sideline the Palestinians and claim that normalization between Israel and the Arabs can be achieved without having to deal with the Palestinians. Um, I think what's happened as of last week has been a reminder that that is not possible.
2: Mm. So, Actually, when we talk about Hamas, one thing interesting to note is that, until recently, Saudi Arabia had been involved in its own crackdown on local Hamas leaders. Uh, For instance, in 2019, Saudi authorities arrested the then 81-year-old Mohammed al-Qudari, Qadari, is the top Hamas representative in Saudi Arabia. Although this person was later released by Saudi authorities from Saudi jail, so, uh, Dr. Wan, with that in mind, can we say, when we talk about Hamas, it is actually uh, a common enemy of Israel and Saudi Arabia?
0: I don't think it's kind of the enemy uh, okay. for Saudi Saudi Arabia, because actually uh, they have different uh, the political factions inside the Palestinians. Uh, so I, that is why I think with Saudi Arabia and the majority of the Arab states to support uh, they, they support a very le- legal representative from the Fatah, uh, so Hamas representative as well as Jihad or maybe some other factions. The, uh, their activities uh, without the permission uh, of both Ham- both Fatah as, and also with the local government might not be tolerated. So this is very uh, major background. And uh, to, to also inside Israel, yes, they call it Hamas as a terrorist group. Uh, but uh, we, but, but there was still also some kind of the, the thinking that I know inside this world that okay, Hamas is not so good, but it's still acceptable because they are not uh, the, the Al Qaeda. They also they are not the ISIS. Uh, maybe before this attack, I think it really stopped them. They, they have already uh, mm. got they have the, the capabilities to to maybe further to contain Hamas inside Gaza. But now everything changed.
2: Mm. Thank you very much. That was Prof. Wang Jing, Dr. Guy Burton, as well as Prof. Ricardo Laramont. Let's take a short break here, and a coming back, our discussion will continue. Stay tuned. You are listening to World Today, I'm Ding in Beijing. Today we are talking about the escalating Gaza crisis, as well as its regional ramifications. Joining our panel, Dr. Guy Burton, Adjunct Professor with the Department of International Affairs, Vassalius College in Brussels. Dr. Wang Jing, Middle East expert, as well as Senior Professor, as well as Associate Professor, rather, with Northwest University in Xi'an, China and Dr. Ricardo Laramont, Professor of Political Science and Sociology with the State University of New York in Binghamton, as well as a Senior Fellow with the Atlantic Council. So, um, Dr. Guy Burton, back to you. Earlier, we were talking about uh, a possible rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia and its prospects due to the recent... Uh, occurrence, especially this Gaza crisis. But if we if we take a look at the situation beyond Saudi Arabia, do you think the current um, war in Gaza or surrounding Gaza could undo the Abraham Accords, which saw this a series of normalization of relations between Israel and a number of Arab nations in in the last few days of the Donald Trump era?
1: Oh, oh, no, no not, not at all. I think um, the normalization that's taken place between Israel and, and these other Arab countries, principally the UAE, Bahrain, Sudan and Morocco, those will remain in place. I mean, obviously, the events of the last week and uh, you know the Israeli campaign in Gaza is going to cool relations between uh, the, you know, Israel and those countries. Um, what we and we'll also obviously see you know protests and you know by by in the arab street uh, by 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 uh, people in those countries and the regimes will have to take those into account so they will you know downplay their, their ties to israel but i do not see this as uh, you know just you know have overturning the abraham accords absolutely not and as 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 professor laramont has pointed out and i've concurred um you know this has maybe put a, a you know put a a momentary Roadblock in the road for uh, you know, normalization between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia, but uh, it's a, it, you know the long term it's likely to uh, you know to, to continue.
2: Hmm. So, uh, Doctor Wang Jing, what is your take? I mean, uh, if um, this normalization of ties that has already taken place, already completed between Israel and these Arab nations, if these trends are irre- irreversible. Then how would you explain this particular phenomenon? For instance, across the Middle East, we have seen a surge of support for Palestinians this time around, including from the Arab countries that have already normalized their ties with Israel. I think the
0: support for the Palestinians are kind of uh, sympathy from the uh, Arab society as well as Arab public opinion. But, uh, when we're talking about the political, uh, decisions, they are sometimes motivated by the social opinion, but sometimes they should be based upon the political leaders, very rational as well as the very, uh, very neutral decisions themselves. So, uh, I, I totally agree that uh, yes, uh, now the normalization process between Israel and the and Saudi Arabia has already to some extent, uh, suspended given the large wave of, uh, of the, uh, the the conflicts between Israel and Palestinians in Gaza, and also the, uh, the the ongoing humanitarian crisis, especially in the Gaza Strip of the Palestinian ordinary pers- the ordinary people, that will give the new pressure to the to Saudi Saudi Arabia government as well as to other states, Arab states governments, so they force them to uh, to to suspend their uh, their process of normalization with Israel. But again, with the longer term. Uh, I think it will have it will happen, it will have realized. Because on the one hand, uh, when we're talking about okay, all the Arabs are one family, they are the idea that uh, created and believed and many decades ago. So, so so, I think now the the, the younger generation of leaders, especially um, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, I, don't, so I think they, they have their own uh, explanation and their own understanding about the world. And then, on the other hand, that uh, the, the normalization ties in 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 the Middle East, I think, from the Saudi Arabia' their own perspective as well as other Arab states' perspective, I think it will benefit uh, many. So, uh, so I I think maybe this this is a little bit uh, sounds like a tragedy for the Palestinians, uh, but uh, yeah, but we I'm afraid it will happen. I mean, someday in the future.
2: Mm-hmm. So, Professor Ricardo Laramont, let me get your take, and this is actually one point you raised earlier, that over the long term, probably, this normalization of ties between Israel and the Arab world uh, will take place anyway, no matter what. So, I have seen uh, some geopolitical analysts uh, describing this latest Hamas attack as a a uh, political or strategic gamble they are willing to take some risk to take this gamble uh in order to you know to 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 send a message to their fellow arab countries that don't forget us we are here we are important so um if if like you and the other two panelists have said this normalization is unstoppable then can we say this gamble by Hamas will be futile.
3: I mean, we can understand the attack perhaps on some level as a cry from the dark for some sort of recognition. Um, But what Hamas did was essentially suicidal. How can a military force, however determined as it may be, attack the state of Israel, which is formidably armed and now is committed as a state, as a nation, and as a people to fight for its survival with the clear memory of the Holocaust. It's a a fundamental miscalculation of the motivations of the Israelis to survive in the face of a large-scale attack. I mean, in in warfare, you have to understand the military capacity and the motivation of your enemy. Mm -hmm. And and from from a strategic perspective, this is a gross miscalculation of, of... what the Israelis are capable of. This will provoke a ground attack by the Israelis that will lead to the deaths of thousands of Israelis and thousands or tens of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza. It's going to be tragic. Mm -hmm. And in the long run the Israelis may not necessarily be successful in acquiring their military objectives. No one wins from this scandal. Mm -hmm. And I think it amounts to an expression of outrage, a demand for recognition from the Palestinians in Gaza, but it will lead to a human catastrophe.
2: Mm. So, this is a lose lose situation, and uh, which, like you said, will lead to human catastrophe. But in the meantime, uh, Professor Laramont, we understand. Uh, the Middle East, the landscape over the course of this year has really witnessed some very positive development in terms of uh you know reconciliation and move towards peace, which was kick started by this deal between Iran and Saudi to Iran-Saudi rapprochement, and followed and and following that, we are seeing more more peace more peace prospects regarding the war in Yemen. Syria is returning to the Arab League, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, do you think the current ongoing Gaza crisis might have an, a a negative impact on the momentum on that particular front? Why or why not, Professor?
3: I mean, viewed. Looking at the region geopolitically, it's fluid and it's in flux. I mean, there are certain aspects to this question that would lead to a logic of reconciliation. However, at the same point, there are still ongoing points of tension. And as mentioned by Professor Burton in the course of this broadcast, there is still the, the, the essential dialectic of conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia that has not been resolved, a dialectic of conflict that is based partly on ideology, partly on religion, partly on political and economic interests. So despite the, the attempted rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran, That source of tension will continue to persist. In, in this mix, we have other players like Oman, like United Arab Emirates and possibly Bahrain who will remain ongoing actors to, to sort of push this rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But that tension will no longer, will continue to exist. So in answer to your question, the, the 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 issue is fluid and it's complex and it doesn't provide a clear totally clear direction towards either rapprochement or conflict i think overall there are more factors leading towards the attenuation of conflict as we've seen in the conflict in yemen and elsewhere but um I mean, viewed objectively, we can see factors leading towards rapprochement. We can see other factors leading towards ongoing tension. So we'll have to monitor the situation over the next uh, few years or decades to see whether sort of a a, a stable modus operandi is possible. And I I don't think any analyst right now can't clearly say that it's going towards one direction or the other. It's unstable and it's in flux.
2: Mm. Yeah, on many fronts, everything remains to be seen. Now, shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about the U.S. role or the U.S. related factor here. Professor Guy Burton, uh, as we understand, U.S. President Joe Biden has already sent his Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to Israel. Amidst this particular fear that the the ongoing crisis in the gather strip in the Gaza Strip might spiral into a regional conflict that is uh, wider on scale and bigger on scale. Uh, I mean, on on one hand, of course, the United States have shown support to Israel. that's that's um unquestionable. We have seen from the personal, statement from Joe Biden himself but on the other hand why do you think Washington doesn't want to see the war spiral into a regional conflict
1: well i mean it's it's in the americans interest i mean the americans have been you know the very prominent uh you know superpower in the region for the last couple of decades um it's not in their interests to see uh you know chaos there um you know this. I, I'm, I take issue with this idea of a regional conflict. I mean, certainly there was some suggestion at the weekend that this could potentially see you know Hezbollah up in Lebanon, uh, you know, becoming involved. Um, you know, this, it's spiralling over into the Golan Heights. Uh, you know, so, but it really has, other than a few um, you know rocket rocket attacks and things, we haven't seen it you know escalate beyond the Israel-Hamas uh, narrative at the moment. So I'm not sure that that's it's necessarily become regional in scope. Even if it does, I don't think it's, 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 it's probably more likely to, to operate, you know, through a form of proxy conflict. And we've talked about Iran, Iran and, you know, its interests in, in this part of the world, either with Hamas or to a lesser extent with Hamas. Um, and this also t- comes back to the point that we've discussed uh, during this, this conversation, which is that you know, the politics of the region is still very fluid and in flux. Um, you know, that some of these, or that despite the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi, you know, the, the these Principal reasons for the for rivalry have not gone away, mm-hmm. and so this is going to continue. Um, you know, while the politics stay, it remains unstable. It's very likely that what you'll see is different actors trying to uh, maximise their interests, their advantage. Um, so they will use the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict to that end. And so, you know, what has been very interesting over the last few years is to see how. Uh, you know the gulf differences gulf rivalries you know both intra-gulf between saudi and qatar and the uae at an earlier stage and then also with with the iranians has played out across the region which also includes you know there in gaza so i i don't so i think you know we're going to see this continuing um, but as to whether the americans are able to you know to make a difference in this respect it's very difficult for them i mean they are uh, you know they've there 's been a lot of talk about the Americans wanting to reduce their their presence in the region to hand over to you know to hand over security management conflict management uh, to their partners in the region, which would include Israel and the saudis and and other arab arab states of which who who, who are allies but it 's very difficult for them to do that because these countries are also becoming increasingly independent and autonomous in the way that they operate and you know act in the world so you know, it 's difficult for the u s but also at the same time, I think it 's also worth noting that this, the U.S. Because by its nature as a global power cannot uh, leave the region. Um, you know, what if, if anything, this conflict has just reminded uh, many policymakers in Washington that this is not a door you can close. Uh, that whether they like it or not, uh, they're involved. Hmm.
2: So, uh, Dr. Wang Jing, uh, in your observation, um, would you uh, do you think the U.S. have the capability or capacity? to prevent this particular territorial crisis inside Gaza from spiraling into a bigger conflict. I mean, one observation we can I can cite here is that some people say, some analysts say, even American analysts, they say that President Biden has paid very limited attention to this particular conflict surrounding Israel and Palestine since he came into office because his attention was elsewhere. It was uh, His focus has been on Russia, on Ukraine, on China, here in the Asia-Pacific. And, and in the meantime, he has done very little in terms of, you know, getting rid of or erasing some of those um, negative legacies of the Donald Trump era uh, on this issue, for example, moving the U.S. embassy back from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv. Uh, do you think this observation has a point?
0: I think uh, from this round of the attack, I think the United States maybe cannot ex- prevent the further expansion and escalation of, co- of the conflict from Israeli really, uh, retaliation attacks against the Gaza Strip. I uh, said, so that's for sure, because the, the conflict had already started and the United States cannot control
1: uh,
0: the Israeli leadership. The United States just to have their, maybe have their way uh, and access to to try to persuade Netanyahu and his uh, allies, but they cannot control them, determine them. But if we talk about the everything, I mean, talk about the very whole story about the Israeli Palestinian crisis and the Israeli Palestinian problem, of course, the United States has responsibility and the United States had should have the capabilities to do something uh, because actually, if we look at it maybe from the longer term, a uh, longer perspective, is, uh, this run of the attack should be, uh, may, might be understood as the very result of uh, years of tension between Israel and Palestinians, especially years of peaceful deadlocks between Israel and Palestinians. So that further led to the question, why? Uh, why no peace efforts are, are were made and no uh, peace Uh, the negotiation uh, mechanism uh, uh, set up and restarted because we know that after 2014, there there has no uh, United States mediated uh, mediated, uh, the talks, uh, peace talks between Israelis and Palestinians. And after 2000, uh, United States uh, uh, brokers, uh, the the very uh, talks between Israel and Palestinians lead to led to nothing. So United States, Right now, as you are right, they, they, their attention has been shifted to other regions and to, the, to the Eastern Europe and to, the, to, to the Eastern Asia. They have now the hopes to say, okay, the American interests are first, American first, and uh, uh, everything should be uh, concentrated upon the United States, based on their hegemonic perspective about, uh, to, towards this world. But uh, then we cannot forget. We cannot forget the Israel Palestinian issue. Of the United States, as the world's biggest country and most powerful states, uh, who has a very close connection with both Israel and the Palestinians, who has a uh, very, very uh, long history uh, with the Middle Eastern uh, countries ever since the, the, the late 19th century? I think they could do more and they should do more. So, uh, mm. so if we're looking at the tragedy of the, the recent round of the conflict between Israel and Palestine, the United States actually should be a response responsible uh, to responsible side to this kind of conflict, in the United States should do something not just to provoke further of the crisis, but to do something to pacify the tension and to seek the opportunities to restart the Israel and the Palestinian peace talks in the future.
2: Hmm. So apart from peace talks, we understand the U.S. Navy has actually deployed its newest and most advanced aircraft carrier, the the USS Gerard Ford, to the eastern Mediterranean to be ready to provide assistance to to Israel. And the U.S. has also begun delivering munition and military equipment to Israel. So Professor Laramont, uh, this is uh, something that um, Professor Guy Burton has alluded to earlier. I, I guess uh, since um, the Obama era, at least, uh, Washington has been seeking to reduce its security engagement from the in the Middle East. But but do you think the current Gaza crisis, along with some of the other events in the past, in the recent past? Uh, shows to us that in reality it's actually pretty difficult, almost impossible for the United States to disengage from the region, especially in a military sense.
3: I, I want to respond to your question, I think from a slightly different perspective. Mm. And the, the the real question is, to to what extent can the United States as a military power, determine outcomes in the rest of the world. The United States has extraordinary military assets in terms of armaments, in terms of its ability to move those armaments around the world. The larger question, however, is whether despite the capability to project these armaments around the world, whether it can change outcomes in the region. From Vietnam to Iraq to Ukraine to the Middle East, despite this formidable economic, I mean, uh, military capacity, the United States has not fundamentally been able to change outcomes. In Vietnam, it was unsuccessful. In Iraq, we mistakenly entered a war and still did not accomplish the country's political objectives. In Ukraine, there's clearly a, a military stalemate on the ground. So what I think we need to have a larger discussion about is what does the world look like now that the United States is not? A military hegemon. It isn't. We're in a multipolar world in which, despite its military assets, the United States has not, as the record reveals, been able to have results on the ground that it, de- it desires. So I, I think we need to, to reframe our thinking. Mm. And, and stop thinking about the projection of power here and the projection of power there, the movement of assets in the Mediterranean, the armaments, provision of armaments to the Ukrainians, whether the U.S. is capable of having some sort of, 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 of of reaction to the projection of Chinese military force in the South China Sea. Though those, those are distractions. The larger issue is the decline or the ineffectiveness of the United States government in accomplishing its geopolitical objectives overseas, despite the fact that it is the largest and most powerful military power in the world. That is the question. We've moved from the United States being a a world hegemon, to moving to a multipolar world in which it doesn't project power in the ways that it likes to. So what kind of geopolitical world are we dealing with? I think that is the much larger question.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, by the way, Professor, for presenting this perspective and putting this into perspective. Um, So realistically speaking, Dr. Guy Burton Do you think it is uh, still possible to get Israel and Palestinians back to the negotiation table in the foreseeable future? For example, how likely are we going to see some credible international peace talks surrounding this particular conflict or issue?
1: I mean, the, the answer to that is a, a pretty bleak one, and I'm going to be quite negative for now. I mean, I think the main focus is obviously on trying to achieve a ceasefire. I mean, that's that's kind of the minimum that we, we aim to achieve. But in terms of actually the peace process, I mean, this is something in which Hamas has absolutely no involvement in because it's actually the Palestinian Authority, Fatah, the PLO, which is the party to the peace process. And they have effectively been sidelined by all of this. Um, they have got nothing to, to say or to contribute to this uh, this uh, conflict between Hamas and Israel at the moment, and in effect, Israel has been, well, the Netanyahu government and 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 its predecessor have been trying to uh, sideline the PA. So, unless there is pressure, so internally, I think it's going to be see very difficult to see any kind of ability to get the peace process started. That said. You know, there obviously there is it, it is an international issue, and that the, the international community could and should be stressing this. Yes, at the fe- at the very minimum, a ceasefire is is necessary. This is what we need to 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 work towards. But this but that cannot be enough. I mean, if anything, uh, the, the conflict has shown. You know, the, the the constant attacks over the last few years, last last couple of decades between Hamas and Israel shows that business as usual cannot continue. That the peace process has to be restarted and. Both of them, both of those, both the Israelis and the Palestinians have have to come to the table. But this also needs to include the wider international community because leaving it to them and leaving it to the United States is not enough.
2: Yeah. So really, let's. Um, of course, in the near term, this conflict will escalate. That's that looks to be inevitable. But in the meantime. Over the long term, especially, we really hope for the best that somehow in one way or another, the international community, the bigger international community involving multiple powers can end up reaching a broader consensus on the basis of, say, a two-state solution. But thank you very much to our great panelists. We have been speaking with Dr. Guy Burton, uh, joining us from the uh, Vasilius College in Brussels, and Dr. Wang Jing, joining us from Northwest University in Xi'an, China, as well as Professor uh, Ricardo Laramont, joining us from the State University of New York, Binnington, in the United States. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.